Welcome to the LSE Events Podcast by the London School of Economics and Political Science. Get ready to hear from some of the most influential international figures in the social sciences. Good morning, everyone. Good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are joining us from. Um, welcome to the LSE for this online event. My name is Yezan Duran. I'm Assistant Professor uh, of Anthropology at the London School of Economics and Political Science. Today's event is a special one, organized jointly between the Department of Anthropology and LSE Human Rights. The two units have been in close collaboration since the start of the Human Rights Center here at the LSE. Their collaboration is rooted in a long tradition that connects law and anthropology at the LSE, going all the way back to Bronislaw Malinowski and the interdisciplinary nature of the uh, LSE Human Rights. It is therefore befitting that today we welcome a scholar whose work is truly interdisciplinary. It's my pleasure to welcome to the LSE, Dr. Jessica White, Sayantia uh, Associate Professor of Philosophy in the School of Humanities and Languages, University of New South Wales, with a cross appointment in the um, uh, Faculty of Law. Dr. White's work integrates political philosophy, intellectual history, and political economy to analyze contemporary forms of sovereignty, human rights, humanitarianism, and militarism. She has a particular interest in the political stakes, stakes of mobilizing the category of the human and how claims to protect humanity are bound up with rationalizations for abandoning certain lives and for state-sanctioned killing. Jessica has published widely on human rights, humanitarianism, and neoliberalism, and on contemporary European philosophy, especially Agamben and Foucault. Her work has been published in a range of four, including contemporary political theory, humanity, law and critique, uh, political theory, South Atlantic Quarterly, and theory and event. She's an editor of the journal Humanity and International Journal of Human Rights, Humanitarianism, and Development. Her most recent book, The Morals of the Market, Human Rights and the Rise of Neoliberalism, was published by Verso in 2019. Drawing on detailed archival research on the parallel histories of human rights and neoliberalism, the book uncovers the place of human rights in neoliberal attempts to develop a moral framework for a market society. Today's talk, entitled Neoliberal Freedom as Stoic Resignation, Dr. White will trace the development of neoliberal attitudes to the subjective comportment required for a functioning competitive market. Her focus is on the irony by which a neoliberal movement emerged as a critique of the stoic resignation of pre previous liberals in the face of poverty, mass unemployment, and economic misery, ultimately came to counsel what Friedrich Hayek ter termed submission to our market dispensed fates. Dr. White will be speaking for about 40 to 45 minutes, after which there will be a chance to ask questions. Um, to submit your questions, please use the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. Questions will be forwarded to me, and I will pose as many as possible to the speaker at the end. Please let us know uh, your name and affiliation when you ask these questions. For those, on Twitter, user, uh, for those Twitter users in the audience, uh, the hashtag for today's event is uh, LSE Human Rights. This online event is being recorded and will hopefully be made available as a podcast, barring any technical difficulties. And now, without further ado, I would like to hand over to Dr. Jessica White. 
Thank you very much, Yazan. It's a real pleasure to be here. And I'd like to thank you for the invitation and everyone at LSE Human Rights and Anthropology. I'd also, before I begin, like to acknowledge that I'm speaking here from the unceded land of the Wongal people of the Eora Nation. So today I want to talk about neoliberalism and freedom. And what I'm arguing is the stoic resignation of neoliberalism. Today, the language of freedom is increasingly the preserve of the right. As the COVID-19 pandemic has dragged on, so-called freedom movements have emerged to reject mask mandates, mandatory vaccination, and social distancing measures. In the United States, those demanding their freedom have held armed protests outside state legislatures. In Canada, the mayor of Ottawa has declared a state of emergency in the face of a freedom convoy of truck drivers protesting against quarantine requirements for unvaccinated drivers returning from the United States. A similar convoy is now underway here in Australia and others are planned in the United States and in most EU countries. The advertisement for a planned European freedom convoy provides some insight into the forms of freedom that are most important to this growing movement. Proclaiming this is not about politics, this is about the future of the human race, the demands of the convoy include standard rights to free speech and bodily integrity and affirmations of human dignity. But they also track in a distinctly individualistic and pro-market direction emphasizing individual sovereignty and the right to conduct business freely. According to numerous figures on the right, all these freedoms are currently threatened by governments that are on the road to outright dictatorship. Among those who have celebrated this new freedom movement, are Elon Musk, who's more often heard loudly defending his own freedom not to pay income tax, and Donald Trump, who argued that the harsh policies of the far-left lunatic Justin Trudeau had destroyed Canada. This hysterical language is not Trump's alone. For many figures associated with this freedom movement, the alternative to freedom is submission to an omnipotent state. Ron Paul, the former US presidential candidate who opposes affirmative action and has argued that victims of sexual harassment at work should quit their jobs, recently argued that mask mandates were more about submission to government than about safety. The pro-Trump Freedom First congressional candidate, Mark Gonsalves, who is campaigning on a platform of opposition to mask and vaccination mandates, recently tweeted, in America, we honor individuals with the Presidential Medal for Freedom. There's no medal for submission. Writing on the website of the right-wing neoliberal Ludwig von Mises Institute, the US political writer James Bovard suggested that while freedom was not a panacea for everything, it is, in his words, far superior to boundless submission to tin-horned dictators who know far less than they claim. There's something disconcerting about the mobilization of a rebellious, at times revolutionary discourse by protesters who seem intent on affirming the fatalistic posture that the market order is inviolable and that there is nothing that can be done to protect people from the pandemic itself. In a particularly stark example of this fatalism, 
the former Australian Prime Minister, Tony Abbott, argued in 2021 that politicians need to think like health economists and, in his words, pose uncomfortable questions about the level of deaths we might have to live with. Among the freedoms Abbott defended was what he called the freedom of families to make elderly relatives as comfortable as possible while nature takes its course. At a similarly early point in the pandemic, the NYU law and economics professor Richard Epstein, a member of the neoliberal Montpelerin Society, argued that the deaths from the coronavirus are not more tragic than others, in his words, so that the same social calculus applies here that should apply in other cases. Like his neoliberal colleagues, Epstein had long made his peace with the idea that death and social misery may be tragic, but they're the fate we must bear to preserve market freedom. As such figures warned about the dangers of submitting to government, they simultaneously treated the market and its economic imperatives as immune to human action. So in this paper, I want to try to untangle this mix of rebelliousness and fatalism by looking in some detail at the early neoliberal conception of freedom. So I'm gonna sort of look at a slanted direction at these themes. Throughout the 20th century, the neoliberal campaign against socialism, social democracy and economic planning was fought to a large extent on the terrain of freedom. This much is clear in the titles of the books of two of the neoliberal movement's most prominent figures, Friedrich Hayek's Law, Legislation and Liberty and The Constitution of Liberty and Milton Friedman's Capitalism and Freedom and With Rose Director Freedom, sorry, Friedman, Free to Choose. The neoliberal advocacy of freedom was intimately tied to a myth of market competition as offering liberation from the paternalism and dependence of the welfare state and the looming totalitarianism of economic planning. And yet, ever since the publication of Michel Foucault's lectures on neoliberalism, published in English with the title The Birth of Biopolitics, it has become common to stress that neoliberalism is neither simply a defence of market freedom nor a revival of laissez-faire. It's now well understood that the neoliberal movement was voluntarist and interventionist, that neoliberal ideologues occupied institutions and contributed to rebuilding domestic and international economic orders, and that they wielded state power in order to do so. From its inception, neoliberalism was an intervening liberalism that pitted itself against interventionism, a thought collective that aimed to combat collectivism. Its central figures railed against what they called politicization, but they engaged in ferocious political and ideological struggle. They sought to pacify civil society, but to do so, as Hayek put it in 1946, they had to arm and train an army of fighters for freedom. For some scholars, neoliberalism is therefore a contradictory movement that hides its own activism behind a free market myth. For Philip Morovsky, for instance, the core doctrine of the neoliberals prevents them from admitting that their intentional coordinated activities were necessary to bring about their political triumphs. It had to be spontaneous order, Morovsky says, or the outcome of beneficial evolution or some other such fairy tale. For Ola Inset, 
The contradictions of neoliberalism are best understood as a result of the difficulties early neoliberals faced in opposing both economic planning, which they saw as leading to totalitarianism, and the laissez-faire commitments of previous liberals, which they saw as powerless in halting this development. A particularly glaring example of this contradiction may shed some light on the contemporary mobilisation of the language of freedom on the newly insurgent right. Neoliberalism, I want to show, emerged as a critique of what its key figures described as the pervasive fatalism of their contemporaries. Early neoliberals set themselves against what the US journalist Walter Lippmann described as the stoic resignation cultivated by laissez-faire. For Lippmann and for many of the early neoliberals who followed him, such ideas, which imbued the liberalism of the 18th and 19th centuries, had exerted a negative influence. By treating the crises, bankruptcies and catastrophes brought about by the market as a form of fate, they argued, liberal defenders of laissez-faire had contributed to the rise of socialism. If suffering was the inevitable result of a market economy, it was easy to accept that the only response was to overthrow the economic system as a whole. Yet even as they mobilised in opposition to fatalism of laissez-faire, they simultaneously argued that a competitive market would only function if people treated its laws as inviolable. Lippmann provided ample evidence of this. The really inexorable law of modern society, he wrote in his The Good Society, was that nations must practice the division of labour in wide markets or sink into squalor and servitude. This meant, in Lippmann's words, that a free choice between a liberal and a collectivist order does not exist in fact. For all his talk about freedom, Lippmann insisted that there was no choice but to preserve and extend the capitalist market. This, he wrote, is the inexorable law of the Industrial Revolution. And while men may disobey that law, the price of their disobedience is the frustration of all their hopes. So in what follows, I take fatalism as a lens through which to gain a clearer picture of the neoliberal understanding of freedom. In the first part of the paper, I examine the criticism of the fatalism, providentialism and stoic resignation of laissez-faire that was central to early neoliberal thought. In the second part, I trace the fatalism of neoliberalism itself. I show that while neoliberalism emerged as an attempt to mobilise the state to reconstruct the market, the goal of this reconstruction was to subject everyone to the logic of competition and to make the market impervious to political action. It is no small irony that a neoliberal movement that emerged as a critique of the stoic resignation of previous liberals in the face of poverty, mass unemployment and economic misery would ultimately come to council submission in the face of the very same phenomenon. For all their rejection of fatalism, they would ultimately find their slogan in Margaret Thatcher's now infamous words, there is no alternative. Neoliberal advocacy of freedom has always been accompanied by an anxiety that freedom must be kept within strict margins if it is not to threaten the market order. Hence, neoliberal freedom ultimately becomes indistinguishable from what Hayek called submission to the impersonal sovereignty of the market. 
a liberalism that came into existence as an explicit critique of the naturalizing myths of 19th century laissez-faire, soon came to renaturalize the market and insist that its results should be treated as fate. One of the clearest and most succinct descriptions of the distinctiveness of neoliberalism comes from a 1951 paper by Milton Friedman entitled Neoliberalism and Its Prospects. The basic error of 19th century liberalism, the young Chicago school economist argued, was to confine the role of the state to the maintenance of order and enforcement of contracts. Friedman framed neoliberalism as a reaction to this basic error. Neoliberalism would accept the 19th century liberal emphasis on the fundamental importance of the individual, he wrote, but it would substitute for the 19th century goal of laissez-faire as a means to this end, the goal of the competitive order. Friedman's short paper can be taken as a programmatic statement that would unite most of those who came together to re-found liberalism in the mid-20th century. In particular, it was typical of early neoliberalism in contrasting this new movement and its willingness to utilize the state to create the conditions for competition with the supposedly non-interventionist stance of earlier liberals. The critique of laissez-faire was a central tenet of early neoliberalism. Yet while criticism of 19th century liberalism or latter-day liberals abounds in neoliberal texts of the mid-20th century, it's much rarer to find clear accounts of which laissez-faire liberal thinkers or tenets they really opposed. In the mid 20th century, when laissez-faire was widely believed to have failed, neoliberals mobilized an often caricatured understanding of laissez-faire to amplify their own distance from their liberal precursors. Certainly the difference was not always clear to their contemporaries on the left. From the perspective of the socialist Harold Lasky, Lippmann's paeans to the division of labour and its centrality to human freedom were an attempt to revive a laissez-faire society built on a profound faith in the impersonal mechanism of the free market. However much neoliberals maintained their faith in the market, however, it was no longer possible simply to present the market as a natural order underpinned by natural laws that led inevitably to harmony. In the context of world war, increasing monopoly, economic planning and democratization, any attempt to revive the market required active intervention, not laissez-faire. For those on the left, the belief that the market should simply be left alone had led to the formation of massive corporate combinations, which were, Lasky suggested, almost empires, and the focus on freedom of contract in the absence of equal bargaining power had led to extraordinary inequalities, not only of wealth, but also of freedom, which was increasingly the prerogative only of property owners. More concerning for the neoliberals was the extent to which these dynamics had led to social mobilization on the left and amongst those they called the masses who demanded government intervention and economic planning. In such a context, a philosophy that restricted state activity in the economy to the protection of property, the enforcement of contracts, and the provision of a small number of public goods that could not be provided by the private sector was not robust enough to restore the central role of the market in social and economic life. 
Ever since the 1938 Walter Lippmann colloquium, dubbed the birth of neoliberalism, organised neoliberals had sought to defend freedom by disassociating themselves from laissez-faire. The colloquium brought together 26 liberals, 15 of whom would later participate in the founding of the neoliberal Montpelerin Society, to discuss Lippmann's book, The Good Society. In that book, published the previous year, Lippmann argued that the most significant phenomenon of modernity was the division of labour, which had created a great society knitted together by relations of commercial interdependence. The intensified application of the division of labour, in Lippmann's view, had brought about great prosperity and given rise to a century of human emancipation. But unlike Adam Smith, for whom the division of labour was the natural result of man was the result, sorry, of man's natural propensity to truck, barter, and exchange, Lippmann harshly criticized what he called Adam Smith fundamentalism. While Smith had provided a revolutionary account of the division of labor, Lippmann argued, he also created enormous confusion as his followers embraced the idea of laissez-faire and the belief that markets operated in a realm of natural freedom. For Lippmann, and for most neoliberal thinkers in his wake, no market is natural. All markets are products of legal arrangements, and so too was human freedom. Lippmann went so far as to call laissez-faire among the cardinal fallacies of 19th century liberalism. At its origins, it was no doubt a revolutionary political idea, he suggested that served to break down those laws, institutions, and customs that were barriers to the extension of the division of labor. Yet laissez-faire was merely destructive and its embrace had created the false idea that freedom could exist in the absence of law. I suppose that a solitary man cast ashore on an undiscovered island could be said to have freedom without law, Lippmann conceded, but in a community, there is no such thing all freedom, all rights, all property are sustained by some kind of law. Capitalism, he argued, had developed in a context of laws that established property rights, enforced contracts, and allowed people to sue for damages. He, he argued that the liberal failure to appreciate the, rule of, the role of law in consolidating this liberal capitalist order and the inclination to conceptualise the laws of property as natural laws had halted the progress of liberalism. Convinced that exchange relations took place in a realm of natural freedom, free of state intervention, liberals had become simple apologists for the existing legal order and for the abuses and miseries it produced. Having assumed that there was no law there, but that it was a natural God-given order, they could only teach joyous acceptance or stoic resignation, he wrote. In writing of Stoic resignation, Lippmann referred to the ancient Greek and Roman Stoics for whom the world was providentially ordered and guided by natural laws. The Stoics famously argued that it was necessary to distinguish between things we can control, primarily our own virtuous conduct, and things we cannot, and submit to the latter without complaint. Floods will rob us of one thing, fire of another the Roman Stoic Seneca wrote, these are conditions of our existence which we cannot change. Faced with such catastrophes, 
Seneca counseled that we follow a single law, assume that whatever happens was bound to happen and refrain from railing at nature. The Stoics taught that the wise man would be unfazed by seeming catastrophes, such as the loss of loved ones, health, reputation and wealth. As even nature herself suffers, Seneca wrote, it is only right that we should bear the overthrow of cities with resignation. These ideas exerted an undoubted influence on the philosophy of laissez-faire. The physiocrats grounded their arguments for freedom of commerce on the contention that the laws that govern societies are the laws of natural order, the most advantageous to humankind. In his theory of moral sentiments, Adam Smith devoted significant attention to the Stoics. From them, he took the idea that the wise man is convinced of a benevolent order in which all evils ultimately tend toward the good and will not only submit with resignation, as Smith put it, to all misfortunes that befall him, but will treat them, in his words, as what he himself, if he had known all the connections and dependencies of things, ought sincerely and devoutly to have wished for. Lippmann's criticism of the Stoic resignation of laissez-faire was not a criticism of Stoicism itself, or even in the belief in a higher law or a natural order. Elsewhere in the good society, he praised Stoicism and argued that we are not so comfortably masters of our fate that we may dismiss the idea of a higher law. He argued in, his argument instead was that in the 19th century, the defenders of vested interests appropriated the conception of a higher law and identified it with their own privileges. As a result, their liberalism was utterly incapable of providing a positive response to those who lived in misery. What liberals treated as frictions and disturbances that would resolve themselves if only the market was left alone, their victims called injustice and misery. Moreover, Given how numerous these frictions were, the attempt to dismiss them by what Lippmann called the teaching of resignation to the masses had only convinced people that the existing order was radically unjust and intolerable. In ignoring the social problems created by laissez-faire capitalism, those Lippmann disparagingly called latter-day liberals had driven people into the arms of the anti-capitalists. Laissez-faire on this account was directly responsible for the rising influence of collectivism and economic planning and the resulting demise of freedom. Lippmann's concerns resonated with those of another attempt to rejuvenate liberalism, which was then underway in Germany and which would exert a significant influence on the early neoliberal milieu. Given the influence of the Freiburg School, it is significant that the Ordo Manifesto, published the year before Lippmann's The Good Society, took aim at a key intellectual adversary, fatalism. In their endeavour to mobilise law in the state in the service of a competitive market economy, the Freiburg jurists and economy, economists, who would soon be called the Ordo Liberals, railed against what they called the legal fatalism of the 19th century. This fatalism, they argued, had led lawyers to doubt their own strength and treat economic conditions as ineluctable facts to which the law had to adapt itself. 
The auto-liberals attacked the fatalism of the left and the right, both of which, they argued, treated the destruction of the competitive market economy by private power as inevitable. Against what they termed this fatalistic view of history, which they said gives rise to an attitude of wary resignation, the auto-liberals argued for the active intervention of a strong state to protect the market from the power of interest groups, whether cartels, corporate monopolies or trade unions, and to enforce what they termed an economic constitution. Of all the auto-liberals, Alexander Rousteau was perhaps the most fervent critic of laissez-faire. Rousteau was no opponent of the market economy, which he argued was alone in being reconcilable with freedom and the dignity of man. Yet in his contribution to the Walter Lippmann colloquium, Rousteau praised Lippmann for making clear the need to renovate liberalism. Like the American journalist, the German economist and sociologist condemned what he called the misunderstanding of freedom, which had led to social atomization, social breakdown, and a reaction against the market economy. Rousteau traced these developments to the belief inherited from the ancient Stoics in a divine, invisible, and unknown reason of the world acting behind the backs of the parties as a natural, reasonable, and salutary law. That's a quote from him. Drawing on this heritage, economic theory, he argued, had construed the laws of the market as natural and divine laws, in the presence of which humans should restrict ourselves to removing artificial obstacles to their functioning. As a consequence, people had neglected both the role of social and institutional conditions under which the laws of the market would function and had downgraded the importance of a strong state to police the market. The result of this fatal development, Rousteau argued, was not only economic disintegration, more seriously, displaying the conservatism that marked this strand of liberalism, he complained that the natural unity of the hierarchically ordered integrated society had been lost. Rousteau was particularly explicit in criticising laissez-faire for its moral consequences. The influence of what he called popular Stoic philosophy on Western rationalism and economic thought had led to a misleading optimistic belief in the natural harmony of the market order, he argued. Even when economists lost this theological baggage, he argued that economics retained a carefree optimism which manifested in a refusal to face the realities of market competition. In every game, there must be losers as well as winners, Rooster wrote, and the game of the market economy is no exception to this rule. This game therefore demanded what he called a certain stamina, a readiness to accept setbacks and losses, particularly amongst those who are less capable or less fortunate. Belief in natural harmony had led to the neglect of the moral instruction necessary to create subjects who were prepared to endure such losses, a neglect which had been particularly serious in societies that lacked what he called the hardening tradition of Calvinism. As a consequence, such societies were populated by bad losers, in his words, who lacked the willingness to withstand personal losses and who expected the state to run to their assistance. In the wake of democratization, 
such bad losers were increasingly in a position to press their demands on the state. Bristol's emphasis on moral instruction made clear that in a climate of mass political participation, resignation to the results of the market could not be treated as a result of natural law. It required concerted action to reconstruct the moral foundations on which a competitive market must rest. The attempt to reconstruct liberalism in order to revive the competitive market was the task Friedrich Hayek set for the Montpelier Society, which he founded in 1947. With the exception of Hayek's mentor Ludwig von Mises, who wrote to Hayek to complain that he who wants to preserve freedom must not profess that he abhors laissez-faire, the participants at the inaugural meeting largely agreed that a share of the blame for the current situation must go to the laissez-faire liberalism of the 19th century. Speaking to the opening session of the conference, Hayek argued that the most fatal tactical mistake of the 19th century liberals had been to limit state action to the protection of private property and freedom of contract. The problem, as Hayek saw it, was the assumption that liberalism meant the absence of state activity, rather than a policy which deliberately adopts competition, the market and prices as its ordering principle. While free enterprise and competitive order may once have been synonyms, Hayek insisted, this was no longer the case. He put forward as a first general thesis that competition can be made more effective and more beneficent by certain activities of government than it would be without them. Like the auto liberals, to whom he was very close in this period, Hayek presented competition as a harsh discipline and a moral imperative. For him too, laissez-faire had allowed the growth of organised groups with the power to interfere with the competitive market and restrict the freedom of individuals. Those who oppose the interventionist state, he argued, must be prepared to subject themselves to the discipline of competition. This meant, on the one hand, that in his words, employers must put their own house in order. Yet when it came to the problem of organised groups distorting market competition, he made clear that the real problem was that trade unions had been permitted to exercise legalised violence, coercion and intimidation. Hayek construed trade unions as a threat to individual freedom and a danger to the competitive market. At this early point, he was clear about the form of discipline that would be necessary to restore competition to the labour market. In a session of the first Montpelieran Society conference devoted to questions of taxation, he argued that the unemployed should voluntarily find relief through a labour service where they would work for what he called just under market rates under semi-military conditions. Hayek was clear about which freedoms were out of the question. Freedom not to work is a freedom that a poor country cannot afford, he told his fellow Liberals. Such a position was hardly new, and participants in the session explicitly cited the older poor laws tradition, which had treated the unemployed in a similarly punitive manner. What was new was the historical moment in which Hayek and the neoliberals sought to restore market competition. Under the pressure of democratization and facing the threat of socialism and economic planning, it was not possible to rely on the invisible hand. 
Hayek was convinced that restructuring liberalism would require what he termed intense intellectual effort to combat those he termed the fatalists, for whom the competitive market was not a live possibility for the future, but a relic of the past. In a lecture delivered at Stanford in 1946, the year before he founded the Montpelier Society, Hayek opened by noting what he termed a curious contradiction in the thinking of his generation. On the one hand, man prides himself on having become master of his destiny as never before, he wrote. On the other hand, there is an underlying but growing current of fatalism. More and more people feel that we are ineluctably, ineluctably moving towards a kind of social order which nobody wants and which we have yet no power to avert. As contradictory as this combination of mastery and fatalism at first appeared, Hayek suggested that the growing fatalism is justified by the kind of action to which we are being led by an exaggerated belief in the power we have over his own, our own fate. Now, Hayek's seemingly peculiar claim that fatalism is a result of an excessive human belief in the power to master fate allows us to better understand how a movement that emerged in opposition to the fatalism of laissez-faire came to counsel that there is no alternative. Despite his own rejection of the fatalism of his contemporaries, Hayek did not believe in the collective human capacity for rational self-determination. On the contrary, he saw the attempts of his contemporaries to reconstruct their economic lives through state intervention, Keynesian policies and economic planning as hubristic attempts to master fate that inevitably led towards the omnipotent state. For a political movement that emerged in opposition to fatalism and stoic resignation, early neoliberalism was characterised by a profound determinism. While he spoke constantly of freedom, Hayek simultaneously argued that anything other than market competition would lead to the breakdown of civilization. By encumbering ourselves with the machine of an interventionist government, he insisted in his Stanford letter, lecture, we find, in his words, our hands forced and our freedom of action limited. Indeed, a policy that mobilizes government to achieve particular ends, he wrote, is thus bound to lead us into a system where the government controls everything. Even mild forms of state intervention from this perspective necessarily led along the road to serfdom. This determinism of neoliberalism was criticised early on even by other liberals. The old Chicago school figure Jacob Viner, who had refused to join the Montpelieron Society, implicitly ridiculed Hayek's serfdom thesis in 1960, noting, and I quote, that along any road there are many conceivable stopping points and there is no reason to make the arbitrary assumption that we travel entirely without the benefit of breaks. In a prescient 1957 critique of what she called the new conservative liberalism of Hayek and his compatriots, the liberal philosopher Judith Schlar noted that they viewed history as a rigid sequence of cause and event that is immune to the analysis of the diversity of actual historical developments. Schlar identified an intellectual determinism for which rationalism led inevitably to planning and onwards to totalitarianism, and an economic determinism 
according to which, without economic freedom, no other kind of liberty, intellectual or civic, can possibly survive. Well, this was a disenchanted liberalism that had dispensed with the Enlightenment belief in natural harmony. Schlein noted that the neoliberals' revulsion against rationalism and their historical determinism brought them very close to Christian fatalism. Indeed, while they argued for heroic action to reconstitute a competitive market, the neoliberals simultaneously sought to render all market participants powerless in the face of this market. It was the auto-liberals who were most explicit about this. The free market system, Franz Böhm argued, is predicated on the assumption that all economic actors are powerless. Specifically, economic actors must be powerless to influence prices. They must lack what Berm called economic power. While he had co-authored the Auto Manifesto with his rejection of fatalism, Berm insisted that prices should be impervious to human intervention. The power of monopolies, cartels and trade unions, from this perspective, was both destructive and immoral. It was in the complete powerlessness of all economic actors that the auto-liberals saw the ethical value of the market. Berm drew on a Republican vocabulary to locate freedom in this powerlessness in the face of market prices. People who value their freedom are indelibly marked by an enduring suspicion of all forms of unchecked power, he argued. This was what supposedly made the market so politically attractive. No market participant is a hammer and none is an anvil, he contended. Rather, each may be reckoned as a free man. Yet this was a curious form of freedom that was ultimately indistinguishable from dependence on the market itself. Each market participant, Berm affirmed, is dependent on an equally impacting, impersonal and anonymous common will transmitted through the price system. Dependence on this anonymous will was not at odds with freedom, he argued, as no one is forced either to buy or sell at the market price. In an argument that would be repeated ad nauseum by subsequent neoliberals, Berm used political terminology to argue that the market price is a voting process and the free market economy the perfect expression of mass democracy. Their quotes. And yet he conceded that price asserts itself with a tangible force, even going so far as to ascribe to the market what he called a coercive force. Such force was different from other forms of coercion, he argued, and that it was not the product of any conscious common will and so apparently could not be abused. This, he argued, is a force without masters or knaves, a force that does not violate the social, political or legal autonomy of those it acts upon. Rather than resenting their subjection to this will, he wrote that individuals regard their dependence on this force as an expression of fate and the simple frustration of their desires. Against fatalism, Berm advocated for a strong state to protect the competitive market from the economic power of interest groups. But this interventionism and voluntarism were paradoxically placed in the service of the attempt, in Berm's words, to restore the market's quasi-cosmic ordering power. Liberal intervention then would compel all market participants to treat the market order as fate. 
Bohm's auto-liberal colleague Rousteau was particularly explicit about the way in which state intervention would work to unleash the market, not to restrain it. I am indeed of the opinion that it is not the economy but the state which determines our fate, he revealed, and that the state also decides the fate of the economy. A new liberalism, he argued, should reorient the relation between the market and the state, relying on the state to further the dynamics of the market. Rousteau outlined a form of state action that was neither a reactionary attempt to protect people from what he framed as the inevitable results of competition, nor laissez-faire, which he argued allowed intolerable side effects, but a liberal intervention that would hasten the results of market competition. Concretely, this meant that instead of policies that sought to protect jobs or industries through protection, tariffs or subsidies, or to make basic goods affordable through price controls, liberal intervention would promote capitalism's creative destruction by supporting adaptation, mobility, retraining, and entrepreneurialism. Curiously, for a figure who railed against stoicism and fatalism, Rousteau declared that the motto of such liberal interventionism would be, fate leads the willing, the unwilling it drags along. These were the same lines that Seneca, quoting Cleanthes, offered in his letters to Lucilius as the embodiment of the noble spirit. Seneca contrasted this willingness to accept one's fate with what he called the degenerate spirit, which struggles and which sees nothing right in the way the universe is ordered and would rather reform the gods than reform itself. For all his rejection of the theology of the market, Rousteau's reformist liberalism ultimately aimed to force people to reform themselves rather than reforming the market. The neoliberal state was not the passive state of laissez-faire, but nor did it intervene to protect its citizens from their market-dispensed fates. Rather, the state was the enforcer of this fate, and its role was to drag the unwilling. Hi. I'm interrupting this event to tell you about another awesome LSE podcast that we think you'd enjoy. LSE IQ asks social scientists and other experts to answer one intelligent question, like, why do people believe in conspiracy theories? Or, can we afford the super rich? Come check us out. Just search for LSE IQ wherever you get your podcasts. Now, back to the event. The ideal neoliberal subject was not the one who wrestled with fate, but the one who submitted to it without reserve, anticipating what the market required of her and adapting accordingly. Indeed, the belief that there was no alternative but to accept the verdict of the capitalist market was shared by the neoliberal movement as a whole. The goal of the reconstruction of liberalism was not to shelter the losers from this harsh verdict, but to expose them to it without exception. So to conclude, in his 1960 intellectual history of laissez-faire, Jacob Viner argued that it was not appropriate, either ethically or economically, to treat the existing distribution of income as though it were the consequence of a dispensation of providence, or as though the market process was as unamenable to human action as the Rocky Mountain or storms or earthquakes are free from human control. 
Given their rejection of fatalism and the naturalism of laissez-faire, one would perhaps have expected the neoliberals to agree. And yet they were far more likely to bemoan the fact that people had ceased to treat bankruptcy, economic crisis and poverty as natural disasters. Once, man treated economic misfortune as fate, the German auto-liberal Walter Eucken noted in 1932 in the midst of the Great Depression. Today, the farmer, like the employee and the worker, is inclined to make the state responsible for such misfortune and treat any assistance as a perfectly natural right. Eucken blamed democratisation for this transformation. While once people submitted to the results of the market, in his own time, he wrote, passionate demands are made on the state. Such demands led to state interventions, which had robbed the prices of their guiding function and were destroying the market order as a whole. Hayek too bemoaned the fact that by the mid 20th century, people had stopped simply submitting to their market assigned places. It was men's submission to the impersonal forces of the market that in the past had made the growth of civilization of a civilization without which this could not have developed, he wrote in The Road to Serfdom. Hayek's belief in the necessity of submission remained consistent throughout all the twists and turns of his political and intellectual trajectory. Writing decades later, in 1986, he noted that the limits the market placed on human freedom were accepted by everybody in what is now the industrialised place of the Western world until around 150 years ago. Everybody, he wrote, was accustomed to the rules and necessities of what are called commercial or mercantile morals. And so, in his words, everybody accepted the unavoidable necessity of having to adapt himself to changes in demand, supply and prices in the marketplace. Of course, there was nothing natural about this prior unavoidability of adapting to the market. As Karl Marx outlined in his writings on the primitive accumulation of capital, such dependence on the market was fostered by divorcing people from non-market forms of subsistence and by bloody laws against the expropriators expropriated, which violently imposed the exigencies of waged labour. All this was obscured by Hayek's pains to submission and by the auto-liberal affirmations of the abstract compulsion of competition. For Hayek, the market was best understood as a quasi-natural mechanism whose impact on my freedom was no different to that of any other fact of nature. Hayek was quite explicit here. As long as the act that placed me in a predicament of poverty or unemployment does not aim to make me serve another person's ends, he wrote, its effect on my freedom is not different from that of any other natural calamity, a fire or a flood that destroys my house or an accident that harms my health. As this language makes clear enough, the goal was to use state intervention to renaturalize the market. Its central protagonists sought to use the state to place the market beyond human control. The role of neoliberal intervention from this perspective was to enforce submission by placing the results of the market beyond human challenge. Insulating the market from political challenge required more than a transformation of the legal order. For a generation that grew up without being taught the morals of the market, in Hayek's words, a moral transformation was also essential. 
Neoliberalism relied on inculcating a version of that exacting, rigorous, restrictive and austere morality that Michel Foucault attributed to the Stoicism of the Hellenistic period. For this morality, self-knowledge combined with knowledge of the providential order of the cosmos would ensure that one did not concern oneself with things beyond one's control. For the neoliberals, as Seneca put it, the spirit must be trained to an endurance and acceptance of its lot. Their challenge was to restore the market to its place amongst those external things that were beyond human control and to find a substitute for what Hayek termed the humble awe that had once fostered such submission. For a moment to return to the present, it seemed as though the pandemic had challenged the fatalism of neoliberalism. Faced with a health emergency, wealthy liberal states that seemed to have long made their peace with letting die in the name of the sanctity of the market, embraced emergency economic measures and massive deficits that had appeared unimaginable only a year earlier. Polities that had for decades been told that there was no alternative suddenly witnessed extraordinary political mobilization to protect human lives and livelihoods. Today, freedom is the name for the return to business as usual. Frederick Jamison famously remarked that it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Today, it seems it's easier to imagine the unnecessary deaths of millions of people across the globe than adequate investment in healthcare and social welfare. As right-wing pundits and policymakers demand a return to normal, complete with the slashing of welfare payments and a focus on austerity and balanced budgets, it's time to break with the idea that freedom is synonymous with submission to the impersonal demands of the sovereign market. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Jessica. Thank you so much for this stimulating uh, presentation. Uh, we will now open the floor to questions from the audience. Uh, please type short questions into the Q&A box, and we will try to answer as many as possible. Uh, if possible, please uh, include your name and affiliation uh, with the question. Um, and um, as we wait for uh, questions from the audience, um, I was wondering if you could say a little bit more about um, the status of law in this kind of uh, moral order um, that neoliberalism is um, um, kind of uh, pushing. Um, in, uh, Quinn Slobodian makes a, a similar argument about um, um, neoliberalism being uh, kind of a, a fundamentally a legal kind of a, a doctrine that wants to encase uh, markets. And you're making a, a really um, compatible but also kind of compelling argument uh, that um, it's not just about the um, uh, legal functioning of order uh, of, of markets, but about the creating of certain subjects um, that are um, 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 compatible with this market order. Um, so one of the things that kind of um, um, I find striking is that in many of the social movements uh, today, both on the right and on the left, the rule of law seems to be this kind of ultimate ends that everyone, end that everyone is kind of uh, pushing for. Uh, in a sense, regardless whether you're on the right or on the left, uh, the demand to um, um, 
you know, um, um, uh, subject oneself to the rule of law um, seems to be unquestionable, uh, as it were. So I'm, I'm trying to kind of push you a little bit uh, on this point about, you know, the difference between, say, um, right-wing versus uh, left-wing politics today after this, you know, these decades of uh, neoliberalism. Is really there such a difference? Okay. Um, thanks. That's a great sort of questions and provocations, and there's a lot in there. Certainly in terms of the early period that I was uh, largely talking about, law was really fundamental to the neoliberal project and Quinn Slobodian's work has been really excellent and important in revealing that centrality. But I'm wanting to suggest, as you said, that it's not just law but also morality. And I think it's Hayek probably who theorised this distinction most explicitly, arguing that a free society requires not only a rule of law, which he was certainly believed a free society required, but also a moral order. And not only that, but a very distinctive form of moral order. Now, he argued that morals, unlike laws, could not be coercively imposed, or at least that state coercion shouldn't be used to impose them. But he did believe that social pressure, moral pressure, was absolutely essential in enforcing a free order. So at its extreme, he argues, for instance, that no free society will survive unless parents refuse to allow their children to play with children who have bad manners. So that's sort of one example of this coercive pressure of morality. But one of the things that distinguished Hayek and Hayekian neoliberalism from, say, the liberalism of someone like John Stuart Mill is that Mill saw social pressure, moral pressure, as potentially a barrier to human freedom. And Hayek believed that this was the the key point that had created a crisis for previous liberalism and set it off in a sort of libertarian almost direction um, or a permissive direction is more in his words. So in terms of the distinction between left and right, I mean, I think certainly it's, uh, I would argue, somewhat dispiriting the extent to which left-wing politics has often been reduced to advocacy of the rule of law or in an international sphere to critiquing violations of international law as though international law were not itself a terrain of struggle. And I think certainly we see advocacy for rule of law on the sort of the neoliberal right. Um, I'd have to think I haven't noticed it as being so central in the so-called like freedom movement convoy. I think we see much more the mobilisation of an idea that people need to stand up and rebel against tyranny, um, certainly in a language of rights and civil rights, but I haven't seen so prominently a, an argument of rule of law in those kind of right-wing movements. Yeah, I mean, uh, there might be also some differences between, uh, say, um, um, political mobilizations in, in, in the West versus in the uh, developing uh, world. Um, and there are obviously some contrasts that are, that, that are probably worth yeah, thinking about. Um, so uh, we have a, a question from Deborah James, uh, LSE Anthropology. Do you have thoughts on the way uh, those who subscribe to neoliberalism often use free market ideas as an ideology to hide the role they give to the state, including not only cynical governments, but also say small uh, proprietors and petty entrepreneurs on the ground in colonial 
settings who might otherwise uh, be seen as oppressed. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, thank you. Um, it's a it's a really good question, and it's part of really what I've been trying to think through in relation to this paper. Being really struck by the mobilization of freedom by uh, movement and by figures who were also so intent on counselling submission and also so willing to use quite extraordinary forms of state violence, Um, certainly in the colonial setting, as I um, wrote about in my book, The Morals of the Market, the majority of the neoliberals were very comfortable with the violence that upheld the British Empire in particular because of the sort of ideological cover that this was, after all, the empire of freedom, the empire of free trade. So I think that there's a real a real power to this language of freedom, obviously, and I think that the, the mobilisation of that language has... Uh, it's been compelling partly because of the amorphousness of freedom, because in a certain sense, freedom is that which nobody can simply not want. And therefore, I think that these figures have been very good at creating this logical deterministic sequence of events where if indeed you do want freedom, then you have to sign up for this whole sort of uh, strand of interlocking ideas and policies to the point where you're accepting that a sort of a Pinochet-style state Mm. is necessary in order to preserve freedom. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I mean, that that could be an an interesting point also in relation to, say, um, neoliberal thought uh, on the international level, say, like relations between states versus uh, maybe a a slightly later development where um, neoliberal interventions take place on the level of uh, uh, states, uh, especially in post-colonial contexts. So, so, um, uh, you know, thinking about, um, say, that whole decade uh, of the 90s and the ways in which neoliberal thought was exported and extended to post-colonial context, not, this, not through this kind of direct uh, intervention, but uh, through the, the instruments of um, uh, development, international development um, agencies. Um, so do you see any, any difference there between, um, say, these two contexts, the, the, uh, the, the context of international relations, neoliberal thought in relation to uh, international relations versus neoliberal thought within uh, nation states? Look, I think that there are all, there are numerous kinds of differences between neoliberals in various different contexts. But one of the things that I think uh, united the two projects is their constant affirmation of the idea that a free market supposedly led to peace. Now, they mobilised this argument on a domestic level to argue that only a free market enabled individuals to pursue their own ends without needing to engage in political conflict over ends, Mm -hmm. so that on a domestic level, this would supposedly lead to a domestic order of pacification. But they also argued that on the international level, 
imperialism was in fact not the highest stage of capitalism, as Lenin had argued, but was the result of turning away from the free market. And so they portrayed this sort of utopia of pacified commercial relations on an international level. Um, and this is largely in the context of decolonization, where mm-hmm. post-colonial states would simply continue to assume their given place in an international division of labour, peacefully selling their commodities on an international market, and that this would be the basis of international peace. So they write a lot about the period in the lead up to the First World War and the breakdown of Pacific international relations, which they essentially blame on domestic uh, collectivist policies in countries like England and the United States and Mm -hmm. in Europe which they argue have led to forms of nationalism and broken down the possibility of peaceful international commercial relations of a kind that supposedly existed in the high point of imperialism. Right, right. Thanks. Uh, We have a question from um, Lars uh, uh, Cornelissen, Associate Researcher at uh, uh, Radboud University in the Netherlands but based in Liverpool. Um, So he says, uh, you've written brilliantly about the racialized tropes underpinning early neoliberal thought. A great many neoliberals have tended to stereotype non-Western populations, including especially Asian and Islamic ones, by casting them precisely as fatalistic. How do you think this racial dimension cuts across both the neoliberal critique of fatalism and the neoliberal advocacy of submission. Um, Thank you, Lars. That is an excellent question and a difficult one. And I would add that you also have written brilliantly about the racialized dynamics of neoliberalism. So I would be really um, keen to talk more about this question. And you're absolutely right. I mean, it's something that um, neoliberal figures mobilized widely when they talked, um, interestingly, in particular, um, in a sort of stereotypical sense, I was really struck reading neoliberal figures about how often they mobilised an idea of Islam as fatalistic and how often they compared Islam and communism uh, as if these were almost two versions of the same fatalistic threat that was threatening what they called Western civilization. So, I mean, in relation to the stoicism and the fatalism, I need to think about that again more explicitly in relation to those themes of the the racialization of early neoliberalism. But certainly you're right that I think that this idea that the West was unique in being populated by people who understood how to form societies through the division of labour Um, and therefore were free societies was really important. Great, thank you. Um, We have another question from Gabriella, PhD student uh, in the Department of Anthropology at the LSE. Uh, She says, could you expand on the issue of freedom from work being the only freedom we can't allow to ourselves? How do you see this relevance? uh, How do you see this relevance of work as maybe showing this neoliberal principle also beyond uh, and in other progressive perspectives. So I guess the question is, um, what is the, uh, so this, the claim that, uh, the own, that, that freedom from work is the only um, 
uh, freedom we can't allow to ourselves, how is this relevant to um, the um, um, neoliberal sort of thought um, um, in general and in relation to other progressive perspectives that might not be neoliberal? I guess that's the, the question. Okay. Um, thanks very much. So that quote about the freedom not to work is a freedom that a society can't afford came from Hayek at the first session of the, sorry, the first conference of the Montpelier Society. And I think that it certainly has a lot of relevance today because I think that the kind of policies that Hayek and the neoliberals were endorsing, which were policies which subjected the unemployed to punitive regimes, are very much present today. So there was a debate in that early session of the conference about how to ensure that this work that would be done by the unemployed was less attractive than uh, working on the market um, and therefore to force people to take a job out of fear of being sent into this semi-military labour service, as Hayek called it. And some of them weren't so sure that people should be in semi-military conditions at below market rates. They thought maybe semi-military conditions at the minimum market rate might be okay. But I think that the kinds of interventions that Hayek advocated and also the kind of interventions that the auto-liberal figures um, wanted when someone like Rusto talked about how the unwilling fate drags along. One of the ways of dragging people along is by using sort of punitive forms of retraining and sort of job readiness to force people into the labour market. So I think that to answer that part of your question, that that is still very much a dynamic that is with us today and is one of the sort of the legacies of decades and decades of neoliberal restructuring. Great, thank you. So this is a question from Andrew uh, Rudlevsky, uh, a retired member of the public. To what extent do you think the QE that has been in progress since 2008 has um, unbalanced the market worldwide to the extent that it drives neoliberals. I'm not sure what QE um, refers to, if, um, if Andrew would like to explain a bit. So you're talking about quantitative easing. Let's take a, a, another question uh, until uh, Andrew has a chance to um, explain a bit. Um, so is there a sense, this is a question um, from M. Johnson, is there a sense in which the authoritarian function of holding insecurity has been transferred from goods um, to markets, from gods to markets? Is therefore the wish for something eternal, a reflection of a deep insecurity in neoliberals? And is it possible that a search for the root of this insecurity is the key to understanding the problem within capitalism? So is there, a, um, uh, is there a kind of a dual sort of function, right? That, that, um, uh, that, that, that there's a search uh, for insecurity that demands, that fuels uh, that search for, for security as well that is within uh, neoliberal thought? Mm. Look, that's an interesting question. I tend to be a little more cynical about it and think that really what they were looking for was something which would enforce a form of submission to the market and the sort of theological ideas that 
were an inheritance of economic theory seemed to provide a mechanism to sanctify the market, essentially. Mm -hmm. So I think that one of the things that's really interesting is the sort of the different views to religion and particularly to Christianity amongst early neoliberal thinkers. Some of them were very religious figures, particularly among the auto-liberals, and they really all of them believed that one of the real disasters of earlier liberalism had been what they saw as its antagonism to Christianity. So they certainly wanted a reconciliation with Christianity. But in the case of someone like Hayek, he was very explicit about how he was really quite pragmatic about this. He was himself agnostic, but he simply believed that people needed something like religion to convince them to submit to things that they didn't understand and primarily to submit in this case to the market. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So we've heard back from uh, from Andrew. Uh, indeed, so he means um, quantitative easing. So the question is, to what extent do you think the, uh, um, the quantitative easing that has been in progress since 2008 has unbalanced the market worldwide to the extent that it drives neoliberalism? Mm, I'm not sure about driving neoliberalism or unbalancing. Um, I think that we've been going through periods of supposed crisis and resurrection of neoliberalism ever since the global financial crisis. And I think that many people have written about the idea that with every sort of wave of stimulus or every bailout that neoliberalism is supposedly dead. And there's been lots of discussion about zombie neoliberalism, mutant neoliberalism. How is it that this neoliberalism seems to survive its numerous deaths? Um, I think that... Uh, Unfortunately, it seems to me that neoliberalism is not dead yet and that uh, in some ways some of the, the discourse of neoliberal crisis relies on a mistaken understanding of neoliberalism as being simply reducible to laissez-faire. So there's been a tendency to assume that any state intervention into the economy is therefore a break with neoliberalism. And I think that one of the things that I hope to have showed here and that many other scholars have shown is that this idea is not an adequate way to understand neoliberalism. Thanks. We have a, a question from uh, Maita Hailes e Sociology. She says, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on the meaning of the human in neoliberal notions of human freedom and importantly, the human in the market. In other words, do you uh, become both human and free only when you partake in the market? Mm. I would say in a certain sense, yes, in the sense that I think that they have a, a profoundly racialized understanding of the human, which is also about a capacity to engage in market exchange. So one of the things that I was very struck by reading these early neoliberals was how economic and racial categories constantly blurred into each other. Mm -hmm. So they would talk about how, you know, the white races are superior because they have a greater capacity to form societies through the division of labor, for example. Um, and so, yes, I think that there's an element of the fact that one only becomes truly human as a participant in a market society. And Hayek has a whole um, a 
a racialized evolutionary narrative of the development of market societies where he contrasts market societies to the sort of what he calls the morality of the tribe or savages um, who supposedly believed in collectively shaping ends and were not prepared to submit to this moral order of the market. So while I hadn't put it that way myself, in a certain sense, I think it would be legitimate to argue that, yes, to be truly human, one is required to be a market participant for these figures. Great, thank you. Um, so uh, I don't see any more questions from the from the audience, but I have a maybe a final um, question, uh, maybe a general question uh, about uh, when you you focus on um, uh, hegemonic neoliberal. I mean, you you focus on uh, hegemonic understandings of uh, human rights, uh, and within that even hegemonic uh, sort of accounts of neoliberalism. Uh, obviously, there are uh, um, several sort of variations on that. Um, so maybe to kind of like uh, relate um, this focus to um, certain disciplines like, like anthropology, like sociology, that tend to focus less on the hegemonic and more on the particular, right? So kind of, you know, we're always looking for the, for the particular, the, the counter-hegemonic. Um, so what is, um, let's say, what is the um, benefit uh, that um, a focus on hegemonic account, uh, you know, might, might provide for um, uh, disciplines that are trying to grapple with the, with the particular rather than these kind of universal claims? Uh, I think that the benefit really is that these figures have unfortunately wielded a quite significant level of power. Mm. And I focus in terms of human rights organisations, as you say, my focus has tended to be on the, the big major human rights NGOs. But I would argue that Human Rights Watch or Amnesty International have extraordinary capacity to mobilise resources internationally to publicise their arguments. This doesn't mean in any way that there are not numerous forms of counter-hegemonic uses of human rights, but I think that there is a significant power to these organisations that mean that they need to be taken seriously. I also am often struck by the fact that neoliberal ideas have been taken up very broadly, including by people who don't see themselves as neoliberals at all and would not see themselves in any way as committed mm. to the broader projects of neoliberal thinkers. So I think sometimes that I'm struck by the fact that things that people mobilise as progressive arguments, I know were initially developed in the 1940s in a Montpelier Society conference. Mm. I think it's useful to, to know that. It's not a um, determinism by origins. It may be that certain arguments have a purchase outside of those circles and can be used for, for other purposes. But I do think at certain points that it should lead to a certain caution um, to know that those arguments were part of a cluster of other arguments that were seen, at least by the protagonists, as necessarily fitting together. <laughs> great. Thank you so much. Thanks, Jessica. It's been a great pleasure to have you with us here today. And we are particularly my pleasure. grateful that you agreed to join us at such a, a late hour where you are in, in Sydney. Um, 
Many thanks to our audience for taking part uh, in this uh, discussion and for joining this uh, joining us this this morning. Thank you all. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. You can subscribe to the LSE Events Podcast on your favorite podcast app and help other listeners discover us by leaving a review. Visit lse.ac.uk forward slash events to find out what's on next. We hope you join us at another LSE event soon.